right, well, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn uh, to Luke's gospel. We're going to read a passage from Luke chapter 1, and then we're going to go to the very end of Luke, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 24. And so um, you can go ahead and get those passages kind of teed up this morning. And um, let me kind of set up where we're going uh, this morning this way. We are beginning a new series that we're calling Gifts Under the Tree. As you already know, Christmas is a season of giving and receiving of gifts. And so we spend every year a lot of time. Uh, this time of year, we invest a lot of time just planning, kind of shopping, wrapping, and then giving uh, Christmas gifts to the people that we love. So gifts are a big deal at Christmas because the entire season of Christmas is about the gift that God gave to us in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ, because he loved us. And, and so it, it's just incredible to think about the fact that billions of people around the world will celebrate Christmas in just a few weeks. And it's, it's pretty incredible when you think about that. And, and so then the question that I started thinking about, well, what is, what is the big deal about Christmas? Why is Christmas uh, so special and so big that, that you know, billions of people around the world will celebrate it? Well, I would say this, in a word, hope. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That, that, that Christmas means for us that we have hope. The birth of Jesus is really the birth of hope in your life and in mine. And this is really good news because what that means is no matter what trial you may, go, you may be going through today, no matter what adversity you may be encountering today, no matter how much your marriage is struggling today, no matter what the doctor's diagnosis is today, that because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, today we have hope. And that hope is, is tangible, that hope is practical, that hope is eternal. And that's uh, what I want us to kind of talk about today. Now this is, this is a very relevant topic for us this morning because, because mental health experts say that today our society is experiencing a crisis of hopelessness. Have you heard about that? I, I, was reading, I was reading that according to the Biden administration, two out of every five adults say that they are experiencing symptoms on a regular basis of anxiety, depression, and hopelessness. Two out of every five adults. Now, no doubt that is related to what we've kind of been going through over the last two and a half years. I, I, think, I think what we've experienced is so many Americans have been driven to the breaking point, uh, just circumstantially in our lives, and that's affected us emotionally. But when you think about it, our youth have been significantly impacted just over the events of the last two and a half years. In fact, surveys show that more than half of parents say that they are very concerned about the mental health of their children today. Over half of the parents surveyed said that. In fact, I found this statistic according to Harvard University, 51% of young Americans aged 18 to 29 say that several days in the past two weeks, they have been experiencing feelings of depression and thoughts of hopelessness. Now, that's, that is really interesting because, because when you think about it, we, we live in the richest nation in the history of the world. We have access to 
a, a great educational system. We have access to medical care. We, we have unlimited economic opportunities. And, and we're living in a time when so many people are seeing a therapist several times a month. And yet, we're experiencing a crisis of hopelessness. I mean, we've never been better resourced than we are today, but we've never had more hopelessness than, than we do today. Now, now, why is that? You know, why is that such, such a reality for us? Well, I would say very simply, it's, it's because of the philosophy of the age. The secularism, the, the postmodernism, the Marxism that dominates thought today among our elites and our academics and, and our, our celebrities and the media, those philosophies, church, offer no hope when you think about it. And so, so for example, you know, the, 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 the prevailing thought today is, is truth is not absolute. Truth is relative, according to our culture today. Truth is subjective. It's whatever you make it, whatever you want it to be. And, and so that's the, that's the dominant thought today, that there's no objective truth and there's no real right or wrong. Now, church, here's the thing about that. If you follow that out to its logical conclusion, if you say that there is no truth, if you go all the way to the end with that, then you have to land on the fact that there is no hope. If there's no real truth, there's no real hope for the world. We're just products of evolution. We're, part, we're products of a very vicious naturalistic system. There's no meaning to the universe. There's certainly no God of the universe and there is no right and wrong. It's, it's no wonder so many people are experiencing hopelessness today because it's the natural outflow of the philosophy that, that the world, that our society has embraced. Now, the gospel says that the truth, that truth is real, that truth is objective. In fact, the gospel says God has revealed the truth to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is himself the way and the truth and the life. And so the ground of all truth, the foundation of all truth is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So it's his birth, it's his life, it's his death and his resurrection that serves as the foundation of all truth and really the foundation of hope. And it's that hope that I really want us to consider this morning. This is, as Adam mentioned, this is the second Sunday of Advent. And, and Advent is the season of the Christian year. Advent comes from two Latin words. Ad means to and vent means come. So Advent means to come. And so this is the season of the year where we pause and reflect on the first coming of Jesus. But it's also the season of the year where we, we reflect and look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And Advent is a reminder to us that we live in the in-betweens. That we live in between the comings of Jesus. And we live with the hope uh, of Christ in that in-between. So we're going to read. We're going to read two passages of scripture today, and I'll, I'll try to make the connection for you. So I'm going to ask, uh, if you're willing and able, let's stand together. We're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 38. And then we're going to go to Luke chapter 24. So Luke says this, And the angel said to her, 
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then in Luke chapter 24... We'll begin at verse 13. Luke says this. Now that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. And while the two were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And, they, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these, in these days? And he said to them, what things? And, he said, and they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the, he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They went at the, they went at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he had even, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So let's, let's camp out in Luke chapter 24. And I want us to kind of notice, notice something interesting in, in, in verse 13. I want you to notice that Luke tells us about these two followers of Jesus who were walking to the village of Emmaus. And Luke says something uh, kind of intriguing. He, he, he says that Emmaus was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Do you, you notice that detail in the text? He, he kind of gives us a you know, a geographical kind of location of Emmaus. 
And, and so Luke, what we know about his writing, he was a physician. He, he was very precise. He was very intentional in everything that he wrote. He wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, obviously, and then he wrote the book of Acts. So he doesn't, a characteristic of his writing is he doesn't just throw words around. He's not just throwing words in to take up space. And so Bible commentators believe that this small detail about the location of Emmaus is actually a literary clue. It's actually just kind of a sign that he's pointing back to something. He's really, what he's trying to do is trying to bookend his gospel is what he's doing. He's bringing us back all the way to the beginning. He's reminding us of what happened in the beginning of Luke, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, interestingly enough, which was a town about seven miles to the south of Jerusalem. And here you have, fast forward, you know, a number of years, and, and now he's talking about Emmaus, which was seven miles to the west of Jerusalem. So obviously, according to Bible commentators, what he's trying to do is help, is get us to see and connect the dots between the two. He's trying to help us to see the significance of Jesus' birth and his death and his resurrection. All right, so, so that, that's kind of interesting. But, but he tells the story, these two followers of Jesus, we don't really know much about them. We, we only know one of, one of their names, Cleopas. And so, so they're walking and they're talking to each other intently. And, and they're talking about everything that's been happening over the last few days. The arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and now rumors of his resurrection spreading like wildfire all the way through the region. So they are just passionately talking about this. And so Jesus draws near to them and even walks with them. And then in verse 16, Luke tells us, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is interesting. The resurrected Lord, the resurrected Jesus makes an appearance to them, and yet their eyes can't see him. It wasn't the fact that, that you know, they were blind. Obviously, they weren't blind. They were walking to Emmaus. It wasn't that they were imperceptive. They were very perceptive. They had been talking about everything that had been happening, happening leading up to that point. What's the issue here? I think God had not opened their eyes yet spiritually. I think what we see here is the truth that we really don't come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior through human understanding and through human insight. That's not how you come to know and experience the risen Christ. I think the way that we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior is simply by God's grace that he opens our eyes. It enables us to see who he is. And, and their eyes had not been opened yet. And this is Luke's way of reminding us that we do not enter into salvation by something good in us. By something righteous in us. That, that, we, that we, we, we do not come to experience the love and the forgiveness of God because, because we've kind of come up with it. No, it is, it is a gift of God opening our eyes so that we see the truth of who Jesus is. And what's even more amazing is nothing required God to open their eyes. It's just purely a gift. Just like nothing required God to open your eyes. But he did it as a gift. Look at verse 17. It gets even more interesting. And he said to them, well, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? 
and they stood still looking sad. So they still don't know who they're talking to. So Jesus asked them this question and he's saying, you know, what are you, what are you guys talking about? You know, why are you talking so intently? And, and what Luke tells us is they just stopped dead in their tracks and they were sad. They were bummed out. They were gloomy. And then verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? This is a jab. This is, he's mocking Jesus. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on? That's what he's asking. Now, I think there's a little bit of irony here because Cleopas is chiding Jesus for not knowing what's going on, yet the two followers of Jesus don't even know who they're talking to. They're talking to the one who actually knows everything that's going on. So there's some irony going on there. And so Jesus in verse 19, he says back to them, he's so patient with them. Well, what things? And their response gives us an insight into why they were sad. Look at, look at what it says. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But notice what, he, notice what they say. But we had hoped that he was the one who redeemed Israel. We had hope. We don't have hope anymore. We were hoping he was the one. We were hoping he was the Messiah. We were hoping he was going to deliver us from the oppression of the Romans, right? We were hoping he was going to save us. We were hoping he was going to set us free. We had hoped, but we don't hope anymore. Now, church, can you relate to that? Can you relate to that feeling of hopelessness? You know, we had hoped we wouldn't lose our job. We had hoped that our marriage would go the distance. We'd hoped that the cancer would be gone. We'd hoped that our son would follow Jesus. We'd hoped, you know, that our family would be reconciled and restored and unified again. Now, what is it when you, when you have hope in the past, but you don't have it anymore in the, in the present or the future? What, what is that? That's called disappointment, isn't it? And that's exactly what I think they're expressing, they're expressing to Jesus. They're expressing their, their utter disappointment about, about the work of God in their life. And I think sometimes we, we, we tend to think of hope, we, we tend to think of the opposite of hope as despair, and then despair is what causes you know, the uptick and the suicide rate and, and, and what causes so much depression. And, and I, think, I think for us as a congregation, it, it's not that we struggle with full-on despair, I don't think that's the case. But I think that there are a lot of us here, if the truth were known, that we struggle with disappointment with God. And we struggle with it pretty deeply. Just because of the way our lives have turned out, because of circumstances, because we had expectations that were in some way disappointed or not met. Life just hasn't gone the way we thought it should go. And we find ourselves disappointed. Maybe you've longed for healing. Maybe you've longed for a job. Maybe you've longed for a child. Maybe you've longed to get married. Maybe you've longed for a real friend. And you've prayed. 
for months and months and years and years. You've prayed earnestly and fervently and you're still sick. You're still struggling in your job. You're still childless. You're still not married. You still feel friendless. And what's happened is disappointment with God has kind of settled into your spirit and it seems like it's there to stay. Now, church, can I just throw out a question? This is kind of a wild question, but let me just throw it out anyway. What if disappointment is a good thing? Let, let, me, let me explain what I mean. Do you guys remember the COVID lockdowns? You guys remember those? They were so much fun, man. I love those. Um, you know, there was a, there was a time during, during all of the virus stuff going around that uh, there was so much hope for the vaccine, right? There was so much hope being expressed for the vaccine. If we, they could just get this out, then we could get it and kind of get back to normal, get on, get on with our lives. And, uh, and so, you know, the country was just eagerly expecting and awaiting for that arrival of that hope. And it was interesting because the, the then prime minister of Great Britain, Boris Johnson, was giving an interview. And this is what he said. I'm, I'm quoting him. He, he, he said this. This could, and I stress could, really be the salvation of humanity, these vaccines. That's what he said, that this could be the salvation for humanity, these vaccines. Now, I understand what he was saying. He was using a figure of speech. I get it. But it was also a Freudian slip. No matter how good a vaccine is, there's no vaccine that's going to be salvation for humanity so I go back to my question could it be that disappointment is actually a good thing could it be that that disappointment is an emotional signal from our body that our hope has been set on the wrong thing could it be you know our hope has to have an object doesn't it are, we, we have to hope in something or someone. Hope has to attach itself to something in order for it to be hope. If you don't have, you know, uh, something to attach it to, then, then, then you don't really have hope. And, and so when I'm feeling disappointed with God, and I've experienced this myself, you know, it's, it's, it's because there's something I've been longing for more than God. You, you guys follow what I'm saying? Like if I'm disappointed in something, it just shows that I'm longing for something else more than I'm, I'm really longing for God. Whether it's healing or employment or a child or a future spouse or, or a friend. And as good as healing is, as good as employment is, as good as a child is, as good as marriage is, and as good as a friend is, none of those things will ever come close to satisfying me as much as God himself. So what if our disappointment is actually God's invitation to kind of recenter our desires and our hopes on him? You know, another word for disappointment is the word disillusionment. And if you take the word disillusion, it's really two words, disillusion. 
So you just put them together and you have the word disillusionment. It means, means the same thing as, as disappointment. What if disillusionment is really a good thing? I mean, we tend to think of it as a negative thing to be disillusioned. But what if it's really a good thing? Because disillusionment literally means to be detached from our illusions. And isn't that a good thing? Doesn't the enemy of our soul spend a lot of time, doesn't he invest a lot of energy in getting you and getting me to believe illusions that are not true? And, and so what if, what if, what if feeling disillusioned is our way of actually coming into contact with reality? Which I think is a good thing. So instead of asking, why has God let me down? Maybe the question to ask is, where was I living an illusion? What lie am I buying into? What lie am I believing? I think one of the reasons why so many, so many of, the, of the Pharisees and, 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 and really the, the, the Jewish people in Jesus' day did not believe the message of Jesus is because he did not fit into their box of what they expected him to be and to do. Their hope was misplaced. They... Uh, you know, they, they had hoped that he would rally an army. They hoped that he would defeat Rome. They, they hoped that he would lift the burdensome, you know, high taxes that the Roman Empire imposed on the Jewish people. And so Jesus lived and he died and then, and then he rose and the Romans were still in power. So you could see that their hope was kind of in the wrong place. So what I want to do today is Maybe talk about a hope that doesn't disappoint us, according to Romans 5. You know, Paul mentions we have a hope that doesn't disappoint us. So, so what I want to do today, just in the, the few moments that I have left, I want to answer the question, what is hope? And then what do we put our hope in? Now, as we think about what hope is, we, we need to spend a little bit of time kind of disentangling it from how the word is used in our society today. We, we, we need to kind of think about you know, the difference between biblical hope and then kind of the cultural hope that, we, that we're so surrounded by uh, in American culture today. So, so in American co culture, hope has kind of a few different connotations and meanings to it. I, I think one of those would be wishful thinking. You know, we, we express hope as a means of or as an expression of wishful thinking. I hope the Alabama Crimson Tide will make the college football playoff today. That's a form of wishful thinking, right? Uh, I hope it snows on Christmas. Um, another way that we use hope is just positivity, just, just optimism, you know, optimism. I, I, I'm just optim I'm feeling optimistic, you know, that, uh, you know, it could snow. They're saying it's a 10% chance of snow on Christmas, so you're saying there's a chance, you know. Uh, I, I'm feeling positive about that. I'm just going to have some positive vibes and maybe, maybe it'll happen. We also use hope to kind of reflect statistics and probability, you know, and, um, you know, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful for this or for, for that. And they say there's a really good chance. So, so, so that's kind of how we use cultural hope. I, I think in the midst of that, there's uncertainty and fantasy kind of married together. We're not really sure, but we're just kind of hoping for a home run. Biblical hope is not that. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not, you know, it, it, it's not this buying into the myth of progress for humanity. 
it, it, it's really not optimism. I, I like what John Piper says about hope. He, he says that biblical hope is the confident expectation and desire for something good in the future based on the person and the promises of God. In, in other words, biblical hope doesn't just desire for something good to happen. It expects it. It's confident in it. It's assured of it. That's what biblical hope is. And its assurance is based on the promises and the person of God, the person of Christ. Now, what's really fascinating, I think, about biblical hope is it produces energy in the present. Like, you know you have it when you're energized in the present. You know, they say that uh, you, a, a person can live 40 days without food. A person can go about three days without water. A person can go maybe six to eight minutes without air. But a person can't go one second without hope. And what we need is hope to get out of bed in the morning, right? And, and so what hope does is it energizes us in the present. It gives us, it gives us energy and power in the present. I like how Eugene Peterson says it. Uh, l l listen to what he says. He says, hope is not about the future. Hope is about the present. It obviously has something to do with the future, but it's a virtue which is cultivated in the present. It fills the, it fills the present with energy. It connects the two comings of Jesus so that we are now participant in them. We are not just remembering the one and believing in the other. We are, we are participating in the continuity of the comings. And so what he's saying is what hope does is it makes a tangible difference in our life because it, it fills us with purpose. It fills us with energy right now in the present. It covers our past. It energizes our present. And what hope does is it secures our future. Now, what do we put, what do we put our hope in? Well, like I said a little bit earlier, I think hope has to have an object. It's got to have something or someone uh, that we put it in. And so ho hope is not really about wishful thinking. It's not really about optimism. It's not about, you know, just kind of positivity for the future. Our hope is in God. That's where it is. He's, he's the center of our hope. And that hope doesn't disappoint us, Romans 5. So to say that our hope is in God is to say three things. Let me give these to you. This is about as real and raw as I can be with you. Number one, our confident hope is Jesus will return and make all things new. That's our hope. That's our confident expectation. Jesus will return and he's gonna make all things new. Now I think church, I think as Christians, one area where we kind of struggle is we just don't think enough about the future that God has prepared for us. I think it's tempting to get too time bound, to kind of get too focused on here and now. And I get it. There's a lot to do, right? There's a lot we got to do. But I think the problem is we just don't think enough about what God is getting ready for us. Like it's good. You know, the Bible says eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. Minds have not conceived the things that God has prepared for them that love him. And what that verse is saying is this, he's, he's basically saying the future that God has for us is so magnificent. It's so awesome. It's so glorious. No mind has imagined it. No human language can even articulate it. That's how incredible it is. But even with that reality... 
we do have some indicators from Scripture. I want to share with you just four, four passages from Scripture that really kind of speak to what theologians call our great hope, the great hope that we have as Christians. I could have shared a thousand with you, but I figure you want to go home and eat some lunch today. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Let me just show this to you real fast. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So, so Jesus is going to come back and there's going to be a loud voice. There's going to be a loud trumpet sound. And we're going we're gonna to see him coming in the sky. And, and what it says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So, so what's going to happen is he's going to be bringing with him the saints of all the ages. And then he's going to call out of the grave their bodies. And they're going to be reunited with their bodies as they're coming back down to earth. That's what he's saying right here. And then we who are alive, who are kind of left waiting for the second coming, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then it says this, so we'll always be with the Lord. That's the second coming. That's what he's talking about right there in, in Thessalonians. Pretty incredible. Revelation 21, let me show this to you. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be, the, be with them as their God. That theme is all the way through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, that God has been creating a family and creating a dwelling place where he will literally dwell with us. We're going to be hanging with Jesus for eternity. That's what we're going to be doing. And then it says this, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That is our great hope. So whatever difficulty you're going through, church, whatever you've been suffering, whatever loss you've experienced, he's going to make it up to you a millionfold. It's going to be amazing. You haven't been able to have children. You haven't been able to get married. Maybe, maybe you've not been physically healthy. He's going to make it up to you. That's what he's saying. Isaiah 51, 11, This is short and sweet. I love this. Isaiah, gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah 11. Incidentally, in Isaiah, there's so much about the new heaven and new earth. Uh, it's worth your reading. Uh, Isaiah 11, 9 and 10. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my, of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. The waters, as the waters cover the sea. So what he's saying is the whole earth will be so filled with the knowledge and the awareness of God, it's like the waters covering the sea. That's how much knowledge of the Lord there is. And he goes on to say, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. In, in other words, people will go to Jesus and ask questions. Lord, tell us, and he will tell them. And his resting place shall be glorious. Church, can you imagine, can you imagine a world that's free from sin? Can you imagine a world free from the devil? No more temptation? Can you imagine a world where there's no more disease? No more division, no more destruction, 
No more divorce. Can you imagine a world where there's no more death? Can you imagine a world where, where creation will be healed and restored? There'll be no more tornadoes. There'll, there'll be no more flu virus. Can I get an amen to that? There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more misunderstandings. Imagine a world where the glory of God, we won't need the sun because the glory of God is so bright. We will see by its glory. And what will, what will characterize our eternity is love for God and love for each other. Now, if I were you, church, if, this is, if, this is, if the Lord is just speaking to you through this, I, I would grab... I would grab my New Testament, I would grab a notebook and a pen, and I would read my entire New Testament, and I would make a note every single time the New Testament alludes to or even talks about the second coming of Jesus. It would fill your notebook. Because I don't want you to take my word for it, I want you to take the word's word for it. Does that make sense? And, And so the hope of Jesus in making all things new is the hope that the the great hope that we have as Christians. And, and interestingly enough, it's in stark contrast to the secularism, the, the postmodernism, and the Marxism that we see in the world today. It's like, where does our secular culture place their hope today? Politics. That's why it's so intense. Science, technology, education, the goodness of humanity, the progress of society. That's where secular society places their hope. You see, that's all a secularist has. See, secular culture places their hope on anything but Jesus. And so as Christians, what this really means for us is we need to be caring for the poor and and we need to be... uh, alleviating suffering and working for justice. We need to love the lost and the lowly. We really do. But make no mistake about it, we can't save the world. And we we can't even save ourselves. In fact, we need to be saved from the world and from ourselves. And that's what our Savior does. And that's where our hope is. So our confident hope is that one day Jesus will return and make all things new. Number two, our confident hope is Jesus is with us in our suffering. Jesus is with us currently, like right now, in our suffering. I, I found an interesting verse in Judges 6, 13. Let me just show it to you real fast. Uh, it, it says this, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Isn't that a great question? Do you know who's asking that question? Gideon is asking this question because the Israelite people are so frustrated because they're being dominated by another nation. They're being oppressed by another nation. And so then their question is this. This was asked, you know, several thousand years ago. If the Lord is with us, then why all this stuff is, why is all this stuff happening to us? And ever since they asked it, we've been asking it ourselves. Because we go through hardships and suffering and adversity and we're like, man, if, tr- if God is truly with his people, if he truly loves us, he wouldn't allow this to happen, Right? That's what we ask. And we don't understand, like, even the question itself reflects how deceitful the enemy is. The word if. If the Lord loves us, if the Lord is with us, this stuff wouldn't happen. And so what we're doing is what the enemy has done is he's planted a seed of doubt about the character of God right inside of us. 
and we've fallen for it. And, and so it's not if the Lord is with us. It's not if the Lord loves me. It's because the Lord is with me. It's because the Lord loves me. See the difference in terminology? And so what we need to do is understand what the enemy tries to do. What we need to do is lean into the promises of God during these hard trials. We need, we need to lean into the word of God. And as we lean into the word of God by faith, his grace leans into us to sustain us. That's why the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's why Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's why Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Dear Christian, never doubt God's love for you and never doubt God's presence with you, whatever you're walking through. He will show you his glory. He will show you in his, his love. And then last, as we think about our confident hope, our, our confident hope is that Jesus is now using us to bring his kingdom to the earth. That's our confident hope. Like he works through his people to usher in the kingdom, the reign of Jesus on this earth. And so what this does is it fills our lives with meaning, right? It gives us purpose. It gives us, it, it gives us, it, it gives us power in the present. It gives us energy in the present. That means everything that we, our, our choices matter, our relationships matter, all of those things really matter because what we know is God is working through us to accomplish his kingdom on this earth, that we actually usher it in. I, I really love C.S. Lewis on this. I, he, he says it so uh, beautifully, he, he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, hope is one of the theological virtues, he says. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But it's really one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we're going to leave the present world as it is. He says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Church, your service matters. Your giving matters. Your prayers matter. Your evangelism, your missional living matters. Your giving a cup of cold water to someone thirsty matters. Your prayers matter because God works through that to bring into his kingdom. And what it reflects is it reflects the hope that you have that one day Jesus is coming back and he's making all things new. Does that make sense? And that's why your life matters. That's why we have hope. So church, you know, the world's hard. The world is broken. The world is struggling. But God, God has promised in his hope will not disappoint us. Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to, to maybe think about where you've been placing your hope. Maybe it's been in a relationship. Maybe it's, it's, it's some material possession. Maybe it's been in a pay raise that you've been expecting. I just want you to think about 
Is Jesus the object of your hope today? And the invitation I want to give is, if it's not been, the invitation is that by God's grace that you would recenter it on him. That maybe you've been experiencing disappointment because you're not married, but maybe Jesus wants to show you that you're married to him. Maybe that you've, you've just been broken because of infertility. But he just wants to show you that you are his child and he's got this. I, I don't know where you've been disappointed, but I just know Jesus is our hope and he does not disappoint us. And so would you just take a minute, if you need to confess, would you, would you take a moment to do that? If you, if you need to recenter, take a moment and do that. I'll, I'll give you just some time where you can pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you today for your grace, your mercy, for how you gently, lovingly, truthfully, gracefully correct us and refocus us on you. Thank you for the hope that we have. God, thank you that it's, it's, it's not fantasy. It's not based on some uncertainty. It's expectation, it's assurance, because it's built on you. So thank you that our hope in you doesn't disappoint us. And I ask God that your grace would just renew us in your love, that we would be renewed in your rest, that we would be renewed in your mercy and grace today, and that you would help us to see the future that you have for us. You would help us to see the purpose that you have you've given to us, that you've invited us to partner with you to accomplish your purposes in the world today. Thank you that these two followers on the road to Emmaus got to experience you and thank you that we get to experience you today. And so would you work in our hearts? We just give you permission. Would you, would you just fill us with hope and that that hope would lead to obedience, joy. We thank you and we praise you and all of God's people said, amen.